0: Daniel Gortz, welcome to the Metagame.
1: So good to see you, Daniel.
0: So you are probably best known for The Listening Society and the Nordic Ideology. You co-authored those books under the pseudonym Hansi Freinacht, And I'm speaking to you today as, as Daniel. And we're also going to focus more on this book that you haven't released yet. But before we get to that new book, can you give me like a one idea summary for The Listening Society and the Nordic Ideology?
1: Yeah, so uh, Listening Society basically says um, the welfare of the future is one that looks at inner development. So uh, if we would invest into stuff like emotional intelligence, even if that needs to be further researched, exactly what we mean by it, or maybe exchanged as a concept, Uh, if we invest into uh, the quality of relationships and the generative, the conditions for those relationships, and if we invest into just, just you know, self therapy, um, meditation is very important, actually, mm. or or the broad array of practices, right? Um, that would probably be a really, really, really good return on investment on um, public money spent. It would also um, probably resolve many deep issues or problems in our day and age um, over time would be a long-term project, like building the welfare state it took 80 years. Mm. So um, if we don't do it, though, uh, it's unlikely that we will have the psychological prerequisites to thrive as as a civilization. So there are many other people who've said similar things, like more existential civilizations, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, but it's a, it's a somewhat different take uh, on, on, that, on that theme. Nordic ideology has its title because, um, well, I'm, I'm uh, from Sweden myself. I spotted these underlying tendencies or had these ideas, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, that there are certain tendencies that you can see this new form of welfare politics emerging, unsurprisingly, in already developed welfare states. Um, however, it's not it's not made clear by people. It's a sort of a sentiment rather than a theory. So uh, Nordic ideology tries to theorize that and uh, basically break it down to some sort of to-do list for for political agents. So if, if you'd want to make this happen for real and really transform your country, take it to some sort of uh, developmental psychological leading edge. Of, uh, of the world and and affect the world in a positive manner, um, you'd have to you'd have to do it according to certain principles is what this book argues. And I suppose both books are uh, bring up the theme metamodernism and metamodernism mm-hmm. is uh, is what you would call um, the movement that comes after postmodernism and tries to transcend and include, postmodern uh, critique, uh, bring new hope, new, new sense of direction. The new hope a new sense of direction oftentimes is particularly inwards, right? So you look,
0: hmm.
1: there are all these problems out there. Oftentimes, if we just change our minds from the inside out and change our relationships, the problems will look and feel very different and we will actually find new solutions. Um, so it's it tries to complement our time of mm, all of these uh, these movements of feminism, anti racist post-colonialism, environmentalism, um, post-humanism, anti-speciesism, all of these justice movements, all of these uh, uh, things that 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 uh, critique society and try to. Uh, um, correct its imbalances and justices it it um supplements those those theories and ideas critiques them to a certain degree and with something more hopeful more and that that tries to build something or cultivate something right you can't always be against everything so that's i suppose the the deeper impetus um underneath both books right
0: yeah, you said something interesting there I want to highlight. You said the metamodern disposition is trying to acknowledge all these critiques of the postmodern bent, but you said build, is trying to build something. And there's that famous quote by Foucault, and he's kind of like the poster child of postmodernism, that there's enough people out there who are like building things and he's just here to try to tear them down or critique them. And so you're, metamodernism is moving beyond that, accepting the critiques and it's like, okay, now what do we do with them?
1: Yeah yeah the, this is what I come keep coming back to I, it, it, it sounds a little bit trivial when you when you say it I mean uh, briefly and, and uh, or when I, I say it briefly um, but it's not trivial. It really is not. If you, if you go to a humanities department, the ones that sort of set the intellectual playing field for, for all of us or, or a sociology department or anything or anywhere else, or or the media, for that matter, mm-hmm. the main currency is critique. Um, so, mm. so, you, so you can, you can actually stay, stand before an audience and you can provide a, a, an interesting synthesis of different theories or different perspectives or bring things, solve, resolve intellectual problems or practical problems. And the whole crowd will start Turning in their seats and you know fidget and be, mm, you know just 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 a little bit unruly and and somebody raises their hand their, and they say, "What's the critique?" Right? Because the critique is the result to the postmodern mind and this permeates mm. all of academia, all of media, the public discourse at large. It pub- it also permeates uh, culture, right? Uh, or pop culture. So you have the artists, they, uh, you can literally go, to, you go, you go down my part of the world, you go down to um, uh, the, the, uh, the big art institutions in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, they will literally say that they've divided up art. So we have the post-colonial art, they have the feminist art, and those have the uh, ecolo- ecologist, ecological critique art. Right, which mm. by the way aren't art movements to begin with, those are political or intellectual currents, um, and, and expressions of postmodernism, of course. And, uh, um, all of those art forms are about critiquing the powers that be, etc., they're not about cultivating or, or, uh, mm, a, a new society or suggesting a new society. I mean, if you if you if you examine the, the the nuts and bolts of it, you'll notice that individual artists do break away from this uh, pattern, right. um, but it's sort of become a prison. Like the the critique has sort of become a prison and in the intellectual and emotional and spiritual prison for our for our society. And I guess we this brings us to the to the topic of today, given that the book that we're coming out with now. Is a um, is a response to Jordan Peterson's stuff, mm-hmm. uh, a deliberate response to Jordan Peterson's stuff. So the jury's still out on the on the title. The working title is Twelve Much Better Rules, right? Um, right. But but I want to respond particularly because Peterson has a step back from postmodernism. He says, okay, he has certain. Uh, intellectual depth and and uh, spiritual depth and so forth. And then he says, this postmodernist stuff, is not good. He sees the pathologies and he wants to tear it off. And he, he mm-hmm. imagines there will be something else healthy left. I'm saying, no, postmodernism is a developmental stage. It develops wherever you have advanced modernity, late modernity you will have postmodernism follow like a shadow Uh, in more Mm -hmm. healthy forms and less healthy forms. With the healthy forms, you will have unhealthy uh, dynamics play out, right? So metamodernism is also uh, in the space, same space as Peterson. Uh, Peterson uh, filled a void after postmodernism, and I feel he has filled the void with the wrong stuff. And uh, and this is what I've been, uh, felt since I came across in five, or, yeah, I guess five years ago or something, and um, and that's why I wanted to to write a book that very hmm, very pragmatically, very pragmatically responds right uh, to that, uh, and and perhaps does so uh, with a wider invitation. And not everybody right. is interested in building welfare states in the future or the welfare states or post states, uh, of the future, um, but a more, a lot more people are interested in, uh, living, um, hate, sane and healthy lives in our, in our time. So that's, that, that's the, uh, theme of this book is from a metamodernist perspective, I suppose, but it's not about mm-hmm. metamodernism, it's not about welfare. It's about you me our relationships from a more sociological worldview right
0: yeah so even in the beginning when you were talking about the listening society i imagine somebody hearing you say that the societies of the future in order to contend with the problems we're facing need to pay attention to the mental health of the citizens of those societies and i think a lot of people hear that and they're like yeah of course why is it that we're ignoring those things and so there's a an immediate, and I've seen this just in general with your work. There's an immediate recognition that it's like refreshing that um, that somebody is honestly talking about about these things. And the way I see this uh, this third book, I mean, before we were hitting record, you said it's a meta modern response to Peterson's Twelve Rules. Um, and that makes me think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but are you suggesting that Peterson was have, having almost like a modernist regression in the face of postmodernism, like Peterson went back, and you're saying, "Look, we can't go back. We have to go through."
1: Yeah, I mean that that would be the the simplest way to say it. Uh, I I think um, so. Uh, so it's it's obviously half truth to say that post that that Peterson's way of thinking is is squarely a regression from uh, from postmodern. Yes. Uh, theories, sentiments, and so forth. First of all, he very easily does master postmodern ideas when he wants to use mm-hmm. them. He does so uh, without apologizing when um, asked about God or stuff in religious belief. He starts de- deconstructing the, the the questions, right? So, so that's postmodernism, mm-hmm. right? Um, second of all, uh, much of his critique does go beyond postmodernism, but. As we also talked about a little bit before we uh, started recording, um, there are in our form in my former work or our former work uh, suggested there there is suggested at least four dimensions of uh, of psychological uh, development. Um, yes. And though it's a little bit too far off the topic, I suppose, to go through all of those. But suffice to say, it is very, very, very clear to me that Peterson is farther developed psychologically and intellectually than most postmodern scholars. So Mm -hmm. he beats postmodernists at their own game. And he does um, point out many of the key pathologies of postmodern social um, dynamics, uh, including the stuff that they can lead to, uh, in, in in the worst worst case scenarios, they can lead to to uh, well aggressive left wing dynamics like uh, like the right. Cultural Revolution, China, and so forth. Now, he tends to uh, press the speed button on on how quickly and easily that happens, but um, but the connection is certainly there, and you can see it on every web forum, right? You can see it, you, you go in a feminist vegan web forum, and before long. Uh, the witch hunters are out, and they're chasing somebody for having used the wrong word, uh, and yes, then a yes. lot of people join, join the um, the mob and chastise, uh, chastise uh, the, the the heretic then, who just said something entirely normal, just exactly outside of this particular forum, right, uh, and the admins right. will agree, and now the norms change, right. And uh, so there, there are all of these destructive dynamics that he has, if I understand this biography correct, Peterson's biography correctly, that he has, um, that he has experienced in university life, and probably, mm-hmm. I mean, not entirely unrighteously, gotten pissed off at. Um, mm-hmm. however, um, that doesn't mean that you can just remove this whole this entire stage of, of of thinking and and its many forms the many forms it takes right uh, if you um uh, if within postmodernism for instance uh, issues of uh, critical race theory are very uh, very central and in, in the american discourse anyway um you can't just say shut the fuck up Emer- uh, critical race theorists um mm-hmm. uh, because you're pathological you're whiny, you're pathetic, you're control freaks, um, uh, you're intellectually shallow, uh, you're blaming your own uh, real problems on society, um, you, you're pointing fingers, you, you're, you're uh, setting in motion vicious dynamics, which could potentially be destructive to our institutions. You can't just say that. I mean, you can say those things, but the, you forget why they were so upset to begin with. It was because they do mm-hmm. experience racism right and or, or a lot of people do uh, so 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 what, so what what all those victims of racism will hear you say is they found a nice weapon to defend themselves in a world that looks too dark and too tough for them and you're saying no weapon for you right back to ba- back to being defenseless back to blaming yourself right uh, and it it also fails, To take into account this experience that so many young feminists have. They grow up in a small city, they go to the university's town, there they encounter progressive ideas and they realize, dude, my life was not about my looks. I, I have an intellectual life, I have had these visceral chains on my body and I didn't even notice, and I was being suffocated by them. And this is an experience that, you know, the feminists of the seventies wrote about in such detail, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And ex-
1: described so viscerally. And what they hear you say, when you say, um, stop being a hysterical harpy or whatever it is, uh, the people who don't like postmodernism, in total, say, they say, "I want you back in chains, baby." Right, right. I guess, guess what they guess what the reaction I'm gonna get is. So the Peterson folks, they're doing exactly the same thing as the postmodernists did to uh, to the Trump folks, right? The 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 postmodernists they just push all the wrong buttons with all those white old men for years mm-hmm. and years and years. And eventually the blow the the whole thing blows up and you have cultural wars you have uh you have uh, violent reactions you have uh, lots of desperate uh uh, groups from from purportedly powerful from purported powerful majority groups and and so forth uh who just don't view themselves that way and uh, they get really angry and they elect a really a president that, that, of course, vents all that anger or, or directs all of that anger and uh, feeds on that energy. And the same thing is happening now. Now, all the, with, with okay, a respectable, smart alternative to Trump showed up. Okay. Oh, you don't have to be vulgar like Trump. You, you can be sophisticated like Peterson and still uh, hate electric cars and, and, and uh, um, mm all of those things, right, and and not like feminism and and, uh, not like collectivist perspectives or structuralist perspectives and so forth, this again will explode, right, Uh, that that you get really, really, really angry women now and and other minorities, right, so this actually does not transcend the culture wars or heal them, it it, uh, makes them worse, right, so I view this as a part of that dynamic.
0: Yeah, so uh, just to kind of make this more relatable to people the the thing that came to mind here is it's like when you're having an argument with someone maybe someone you love and they're saying something that to you seems obviously wrong and so you just correct them on why it's wrong you know like no the gender pay gap isn't what you say it is for instance right you if you keep just correcting them on why they're wrong and you point out how they're ideological and they're not thinking critically and they're not taking the whole thing into account then what happens is they'll dig their heels in. And so everybody knows this, that the best way to resolve conflict between two people, if you're really at odds on something, is to make sure that everyone feels heard. And actually, I learned this from Peterson because he talks about Carl Rogers, the Rogerian listening technique of active listening, where before I get a chance to respond to you and critique you, I have to summarize your your concerns to the degree... To, to a level that you feel is adequate, and this this one it's a very like concrete procedure that people can bring into their lives and it's it's life changing. If you slow down and you practice doing that in your personal relationships, they will dramatically improve and you will also start to realize that actually every person who has who says something that uh, at the face of it seems stupid or something actually has a grain of truth to it. Every ideology is correct about one corner of reality. and what's so interesting to me is that um Peterson doesn't seem to be doing that right that that whole f- and I think he can I think he's actually capable of better articulating the these postmodern critiques and then offering a solution that transcends and includes them but it it seems my my simplest uh summary for where I think we're we're going wrong with these types of movements is that people aren't actually listening to each other in the in the way that I just described so I, w- I wonder what you think of that
1: yeah, I mean, obviously daniel i i agree I, um and uh, yeah it's it's another thing that uh, that we talked about before we started recording is that you actually had Peterson as your own therapist you are from Toronto mm-hmm. um so, so um so you have seen uh sides I mean I suppose other people have watched a lot of clips etc I've seen multiple sides and so forth of this uh, this man but um but you you have seen sides at, at, at an intimate level right and i've seen examples of, of different uh, ways of thinking and so forth uh, um now I, I i agree um and i think maybe it's two different things the one thing is psychological skills right this side like the one-to-one psychology skill the other thing is a particular sociological type of uh, perspective mm. taking but it also has to do of course with what what theoretical background you have right if you uh, if you uh, as as me have come across a lot of developmental sociological and psychological theories and postmodernism does not appear to be like this warped this warped thing that just 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 a pathology like let's say fascism for instance Um, but it rather appears to be a certain developmental stage with uh, which can come in more or less uh, useful or pathological forms but that it fairly necessarily occurs yeah then it becomes much more difficult to see how you could just remove it right or purify the world yeah. from it. Um, so, um, so, so may, maybe maybe the reason that there is a difference, well, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to ask him. Maybe he listens to this. Um, but uh, maybe the reason uh, Peterson acts differently on these two domains is that there are two different domains in his mind, and maybe mm. that's the case for many of, of the so-called Peters. What we might call Petersonians, people who like Peterson a lot.
0: So to segue into the, this new book, mm-hmm. I'll I'll kind of try to summarize what what I think Peterson was emphasizing in his book, and what might be missing in that emphasis, and then shift to. Uh, so I haven't I haven't read the the book yet, but in the prologue, um, how you how you're setting up this these uh, twelve better rules, which is the working title. So from my understanding, Peterson's whole emphasis is on personal responsibility. And the 12 rules are basically ways in which individuals can take responsibility for their lives and start locally and then, you know, clean up your room, uh, improve your relationships, tell the truth, you know, stop comparing yourself to other people. Just these basic fundamental things for the individual to do to scale up and ripple out more positively into society, but starting really with your, with your own self. And it's very practical what's missing in that and what i think a lot of people on the most more postmodern side of things have crit- criticized him for is that it doesn't really speak to the the real aspect of structural inequality and the fact that not everyone is going to ha- have the same leverage over their own lives and it's it can't be the full answer although it's a really really good answer and i'm i'm personally very biased to this notion of personal responsibility but there There needs to be more to the story, so that's kind of my summary of 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 the Peterson position and what it sounds like you're bringing with twelve better rules is well yeah, more yeah I'm awareness title. right the work- the working title um well maybe i'll I'll leave you to say this but you you opened up with something called sublime mediocrity uh which is it's almost like a like a tongue in cheek uh anti-motif in the self-help world like self-help books tend to be about you know like get your goals you know be exceptional etc and in the intro you talk about how like that's not what we're doing here and uh yeah so i wonder what is sublime mediocrity and why do we need it
1: yeah um so yeah i i mean a lot of this is in the book obviously but uh, first of all Exception was pretty common, right? Um, I, I think if we check you out, Daniel, and we like for instance, I don't know, you you coach high performing leaders uh on productivity, and that's and you still segue and guide them into uh into uh a, a larger existential Socratic discussion about uh dialogue about about uh why they're doing what they're doing and, 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 uh, yeah, just exploring a bigger perspective, right. For, uh, for a larger purpose than that particular coaching, right. If I understood you correctly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So could I do that? Probably not. Probably not. Um, and actually how many, how, how big a proportion of us would do that as good a job One in a hundred, probably not one in 500, maybe. Maybe one in a thousand, maybe one in ten thousand. I don't know how good you are, um, but if there are ten thousand different skills out there to be good at, we got, we went pretty specific, right? Uh, with with this mm. particular skill, um, and um, I mean you have a very very rich training from really elite settings, etc., right? Um, and then, then the background. So so wouldn't it be so strange if you're exceptionally good at this, right? Nevertheless if I filmed you Monday morning okay uh, hands down uh, an honest answer would I be impressed if I filled you film you uh, your uh, Monday morning when you get up? probably not maybe I'm wrong <laughs> the mo- pro- most probably you would be mediocre right?
0: I think my uh, my Tuesdays are more mediocre than my Mondays, but
1: uh-huh. oh, interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 I I'll have to think about uh, my weekdays, right. I, um, and And that's anyway the case for me. So uh, so there um, and what what I see around myself are so many highly, highly exceptional people, and at the same time, a lot of brokenness and a lot of dysfunctionality. Oh, And a lot of squandered potential, right? Uh, And somehow, and there are still a lot of self-help books out there, right? I mean, how many are there? I don't know, hundreds of thousands, by now, right? And uh, it's the it's the biggest genre after novels and cookbooks or something. And um, people have read them here and not here and there you, you notice little little improvements uh, uh, but they don't really change your life. And uh, mm-hmm. if Peters book was changing lives as much as people are saying, we'd be seeing completely different results out there in the world. Self-help doesn't really work that way. It doesn't really work that much, right you you need, you know, you need so much more structure. I mean if you're honest with yourself, the re- the listener, the last self-help book uh, you read, it probably said you'd get you'll get really organized, you'll clean your house like never before, or you will have better sex than never. and it maybe proved for a while, but then something crept back on you and mediocrity reasserted itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what actually happened after if you're honest, right? and you look at the data, not the imagination, the data says. We're pretty me- mediocre, and this is also the data from from some um, meta study I could find right out there on the web. Um, that that uh, there's there's a very weak connection between reading the self help and, and improving your life, right? Um, and you know, if, if if there is one at all. And sometimes people can read stupid self help like um, The Secret, and you start wishing, mm-hmm. you know. Wasting your time wishing for stuff rather than doing stuff for, for getting what you want. And that's a bad strategy. So people ruin their lives with it and, and then they blame themselves. Oh, why? Why isn't my magic working and so forth? So um, what you get is um, mediocrity and my self-help book promises that I promise you'll be mediocre. You already are exceptional. You probably are anyway. Um, and i I really think, given the networks that the people I know, et cetera, I know and, and I suppose many of them will read it, yeah, you are you are exceptional people. <laughs> um, and we need to be a little bit better at being mediocre. And there is a peacefulness in that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Somehow, the whole like seriousness of life dissolves a little bit, and you start seeing things in more honest proportions, which I, I think was actually what Peterson was going for with a lot of his rules. Um, uh, and And from that space of, okay, I'm gonna be this mediocre person then then a lot of the rules are about exploring different aspects of that mediocrity. So looking at your own shame, for instance, and are you ashamed of some stuff? You probably are, man, uh, and uh, and you probably have to hide it all the time and and uh, be pretty cosmetic about it, etc. Mm. Well, so and, and people then then people want to go in group therapy instead of in circles, but the uh, dynamics usually don't hold, it, uh, hold hold so difficult things because uh, it's just it gets just gets too sensitive, right? and the uh, and, uh, group dynamics take over. But when you're with yourself and just reading my book or our book, just for fun, you can play with these thoughts, right? You can play with them. Okay, what well, what am I really ashamed of? What What is my guilt? Um, uh, well, how do I need to seriously rethink my, my worldview? Um, and we, we sort of get guide you step by step. Uh, through through different things like that, then your mediocrity. I mean, then you're then you're admitting to your mediocrity. You're starting where you really are, and not hiding that you're also exceptional. Maybe you are also the best footballer in your country. Probably are right. That doesn't one thing doesn't. But the best footballer in the country does he not have marriage problems or completely mm-hmm. pathetic Wednesdays? Is it, he does, of course. And if we film them on a Tuesday morning, will we be uh, awestruck? No, we won't, most uh, for the most part, right? So, um, so if you if you start from that mediocrity instead of uh, uh, and and you work it, and you shine it, and you smooth out its edges, and you improve upon it, then you're improving on your on your real self, Uh, and you are putting that real self. In in more service of um, of a deeper or higher goal, right? Uh, and the deeper or higher goal doesn't have to come before uh, or mm-hmm. after you you've you've done that that work, right? You, it's rather a dynamic, right? So you have a higher goal, and then it, the, the more you have a high goal, then um, the more motivated you might be to really want to work on yourself to not have. This and that problem holding you back, and that makes you uh, re-examine yourself, etc. Right? So, so that's so rather than this, clean your room first, then go out and change the world. It's like, well, wh- wh- why would you want to clean your room if there's no no bigger purpose than yours than than uh, than, uh, than cleaning your room, right? You, you still need a bigger purpose, and the b- bigger purpose is still going to be for you as a human being, right? It's uh, it's sort of a fiction that mediocre people have that we're gonna do something great. Um, And uh, and most people live perfectly well without that purpose you have imagined, but you can allow yourself to have that purpose, work for it, and then clean your room to the extent (laughs) that it makes uh, that it makes sense. Your room won't be perfect, right? My, if we filmed around here, it wouldn't be so perfect, right? Um, but then we're making the mediocrity sublime, right? Then we're making refining the mediocrity, right? That's the idea. And mm-hmm. there's even something religious in that. Which I guess we can go a little bit deeper on that issue, right?
0: Yeah. Let Let me reflect some things here. Um, it's almost like what came to mind is a. Is when people take psychedelics and they have these peak experiences and everything makes sense and they get all the answers. And this has happened to me many times where I'm like, oh, I, I now know all the answers. I don't need to read anymore or whatever. And then sure enough, you know, you might have at best like a one week afterglow, but at some point mediocrity reasserts itself, as you said. And everybody I know who's who's in the psychedelic space and psychedelic therapy space, they always say that the hardest part of that is the integration. So you have this peak experience and then now you gotta integrate it. And to me, integration is just another word for what you're describing, which is how do you, uh, basically, I was going to say take responsibility and maybe, maybe you wouldn't use those words, but take responsibility for the mediocrity that represents a disproportionate amount of your life. Like even when you achieve big goals, it's like once in a while, or you have these like peak experiences with, um, things that matter to you. They're, they're just, they're just like little sprinkles, you know, they're just, uh, there's a bit of seasoning on top of the steak and the steak is actually you know how you are on the Monday or the Tuesday. Another thing that came to mind is something Peterson likes to say he, when he's quoting Jung he says the reason why people don't find God is because they don't stoop low enough and I've always interpreted that as this the importance of humility and redeeming the mundane and how actually the mundane is is not so mundane like the mundane when properly understood is is quite profound like your Monday in your messy room, you know, with your shame and, you know, your poor sleep and health problems and like all the things that actually make up your life, they they can they can be actually very profound aspects of your experience if you properly understand them. And whenever we go to like being exceptional, in a way we're running away from life. In a way we're, we're projecting onto some you know, all you know, different states and platonic form that has nothing to do with the, with our lived experience. And what I really liked about your, your prologue was that you were just very honest about this. And one of the things that you you wrote about, which I'd like you to flesh out a bit, is it's like super practical. It's almost as if everybody has some sort of um, baseline state of what it's like to be them. You know, if if I were to trade phenomenologies with you right now, I would have this feeling that's very different to mine. And I, I could probably make some qualitative judgments about that feeling. Maybe it's better than, you know, my, my qualitative state. And you know, most people are, you had this scale from one to 10 and most people they're, they're around like a six or a seven, but happiness starts at an eight. And the, the goal of the book is to get more and more people from that seven to an eight. Do you mind walking us through that? And, uh, and no, then you can actually, I actually hey, bring
1: it up now with this actually, if, yeah, this was where I was going in my mind too. Uh, so I, I thought it make, makes sense to to talk about that actually. So uh, so it's it's not uh, precisely it's a, a ten, ten, um, 10 point scale. It's um it's a I believe thirteen point scale. I'll uh, I'll actually just just mm. read them. So uh, it's they're divided into lower states, medium states, and high states. So medium states would be all the ones. That ha- that you would call normal reality, right? Um, so uh, whether or not you're happy or sad or you know anxious or or peaceful, there's something that that resembles what everyday life tends to feel like, right? Uh, for most of us, anyway, right? And where we usually there are other there are other people who are more into uh, deeper into uh, just the phenomenology of meditation and all of those things who who can, who can do subtler jobs on, on describing these things. Um, uh, so, so this is a mm-hmm. fairly practical zoomed out scale and, uh, um, yeah, I mean out there in happiness research, they do use one to 10 scales uh, when I, which I don't feel is entirely productive. You have to qualify the states a little bit more, right? So the 13 would be, if you look at the lower ones, um, the lower ones would be then those that are you know really 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 outside the scope of what you normally experience uh, when, when when life is really 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 hard and tough so we call one number one state would be hell or number two state would be horrific that's when your phenomenological reality breaks down and beyond that you're stuck in some sort of loop of sheer terror or something
0: and mm-hmm. a state
1: above that would be tortured, right? So you can you can be tortured, but still hold your your reality together somehow. And then you could be somewhat less than tortured, but truly tormented, right? So for most of us, uh, having had an adult life, right, we will uh, or life up into adulthood, we will at some point have frequented at least the highest one of these. Uh, low states, so number four, tormented. Torment. From there on, we can go into the medium states, like the range of where, where well, where things th- things are sort of uh, where we don't leave the the same reality as as other people are in, right, or mm-hmm. uh, as we as we share with one another, basically. So, and basically, almost everything we share with other people is within these states, right. Uh, mm. it would be in, uh, state number five, very uneasy. So, yeah, just sheer anxiety. And uh, you, you know, you, we we've we probably had periods or or states like that. Or six would be uneasy, uncomfortable that you're you actually have anxiety, and seven would be the one where we actually live most of our lives, which is interesting. Seven is okay, sort of, right? So, so, yeah, you are okay and life is okay i mean you don't can't complain but there is something like a mm, little bit nagging you right and that's the this is a very important thing right that in everyday life we so often so much in this state seven where we're okay sort of so so it's the, the suffering is a little bit too subtle for us to make a whole big deal out of it even for ourselves right for ourselves And somebody asks us, are we doing fine? We're going to say we're doing fine. Um, And we also, as life goes on, we might also get a little bit Stockholm Syndrome with this maybe going down to state five, sometimes really frequenting state seven a lot. That, oh, this is what life is. This is what a mature person should accept from life, right? Mm. this, This is suffering and so forth. Now, there are higher states, though, and, and this is very different than from, uh, I, I'm not saying Peterson denies this, but this is now where his uh, focus tends to be. Um, and if you compare him to, uh, um, I don't know, let's say, let's say California spirituality types, right? And mm-hmm. th- th- those, a, lot, a lot of those people will tend to have had high state experiences, right? Uh, and that will have affected their worldviews but also the light within which they, they view things, right? Uh, so uh, so you can be through, you can frequent the lower states, you can integrate them through therapy and other things and make those memories clear and see sort of the seriousness of like, this is real. This is real. This sort of suffering exists in in, in the world, right? And it can exist in my life. And even if it doesn't exist in my life, it will exist in every moment somewhere, right? Um, so there's a of you know, the saint really has to frequent those low states. And I think maybe that's also no. what uh, what Peterson or Jung may have had in mind with stooping low to find God, right? Um, but after it's state seven, there is a state eight, which is also within the normal state within the medium states, right? And at state eight is you're okay for reals. You're okay and there's not a but. You're just okay. Yeah. Everybody has been there, right? I mean, I certainly have and probably am right now actually. And um, yeah. and I guess you must have too, right? Uh, and it's just one one little shift, it's subtle. but it's different. It's a world of difference, and especially over time, right? And then you could add other higher states. Like after that, there's like those super parties you might've gone to at some point, or like just, just the best flow with a friendship or a super date or something else where things are really, really flow, or, or you just walk in the forest, or, or you just have a streak of wonderful thoughts and ideas. And life feels really the- glorious, sort of, right? Uh, so that would be that would be state nine, good, lively. Um, and uh, if you go deep enough into that, you you feel that reality itself is sort of this happy place, and that's still within the normal states, right? You're you're, you're It's within the realms of everyday life. It's not yet a spiritual experience, but you're you're happy, right? You're genuinely happy. Genuinely grateful for this world. You're just, there's joy in being alive. Some people frequent that a lot more often, right, than others, and you can often see it in their eyes. Um, they tend to have, get very, very soft gazes, right, because they're grateful for for this. Mm. Um, frequenting high states though doesn't necessarily mean you've integrated the lower ones, or Usually it even doesn't, right? So there can be something a little bit hysterical about your happiness, right? If it gets challenged. And beyond that, we get into the realm of spirituality or our spiritual experience, um, that even beyond happiness, there is a happiness that couldn't be happiness, right? That, that Because it's just too profound and it's too universal and it just too serious and violent somehow just blows you open, right? right. It's sort of that. openness these are my words other people might uh, explain it better beyond that there's some sort of that would be a state uh, 11 beyond that there is some sort of saintly love for everything beyond that there's some sort of sense of enlightenment or totality or or just just sheer bliss right or uh, and um yeah i mean I've, i've been listening to interesting people nowadays um uh, this young man, who I feel finds super talented uh, from from the UK, Roger Thistel, not a famous dude or anything. It's uh, or 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 rich or a big guru, it's just he seems to have a really, um, yeah, just just to be a natural when it comes to frequenting higher states and and having a precision in his practice and phenomenological and meditation meditative practice. I could. I recommend people like that for 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 uh, uh, just just getting to know the higher states better than I can describe them, right. And mm. uh, there's also more uh, there's also more theoretical depth to this model. If you want to scratch the surface, you can just start teasing out different sides of it. Hmm, so one part is what you actually feel or the nature of 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 your mind, but the other part is how how, subtly notice that there there are different things, there are different things you can add or detract to to, to add more complexity here. But but this scale here of these 13, I think is important um, because this sublime mediocrity thing, it's about polishing everyday life, those sevens, polishing them, right? Accepting them as they are, polishing them, bringing them up to that eight, right? And just how valuable would that not be? Like how much suffering in this world is not that low level suffering, and how much does extra suffering does not that does does that cause, right? That we're all never really quite relaxed, that we're always a little bit anxious, that we're we don't feel entirely safe, right? And I suppose from a depth psychological perspective, then uh, you'd have to say it's something that's got stuck in your system, your like traumas, old emotions, ways of thinking, suppositions about life, um, and just just habits that aren't working for you. And, um, and I guess a lot of the rules of life are try, trying to unlock that or unclog unclog that potential uh, that people will tell you that, oh, uh, people are made to be a little dissatisfied because then we strive. I don't believe that. Hmm. Doesn't make sense to my experience. Like hmm. when, when I'm in state eight, guess who gets work done? It's me. I And guess who gets more ideas? And in state seven, hmm, a lot less actually. State six, I mean I, I can force myself to do stuff, but creative work, not so much, right? Um, of course, I can learn from those experiences when I'm in the higher states, but I really I really need to frequent the higher states to to uh, uh, to get like the to get more refined, the more refined energy to work from, so to speak, right? or more more refined motivation, right?
0: Um, Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And for people who are kind of skeptical, the last bit you just said, I I remember there's a positive psychology book that went pretty mainstream called The Happiness Advantage. And it basically Uh pulls together all the research on how actually happiness leads to productivity as opposed to the other way around. And I, I, I work with a lot of people who are overachievers. And mm-hmm. overachievers tend to have this dissatisfaction with life that they actually draw motivation from. And it's almost like you get attached to that and you don't want to let go of it because it served mm-hmm. you. You know, one of my good friends, he uh, he burns out regularly. He's one of the hardest working people I know, but he's constantly burning out. And it's because he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of attached to like the, the grisly grind. You know, there's something about being dissatisfied with life that he feels is necessary to achieve his goals. At least that's what it looks like from my perspective. But I think everyone can get in touch with that feeling that when you are in a better state, uh, just by default, when you're, when you're at an eight, when you're kind of happy, you also are a lot more generative and your your goals are, are easier to achieve. So I want to highlight something here because what you're promising with this book or you're, you're hoping to do is, is a lot more profound than i think people think if if you could just update your default state from a seven to an eight for the rest of your life that would likely be worth more to you than almost anything else and I, that's that's what i believe when, when i when i think about this stuff because that's your life right like you everything else like those are the pages of the book of your life everything else is like you know just an occasional uh, highlight here and there so the rules, um, and we'll go into a couple of them. We don't have time to go into all of them. The rules that you articulate, as I understand, they're they're kind of uh, principles or approaches that are in service of going from that seven to an eight. And I want to start with the the one that stood out to me the most. I want to hear you kind of flesh this out. Um, and actually, before I before I hear your take on it, I want to tell you what it what I think it's about because I haven't read the chapter yet, and I think this might be interesting. So rule number two is fuck like a beast. And when I read this, the way I interpreted it was through the lens of some of the previous conversations we've had on the metagame, which is one of the reasons why people feel disenchanted, demotivated, uh, and disenfranchised with modern life is that they are disembodied. They, they don't, they're not connected to their animal nature. They read self-help books that give them all these concepts and propositions to make them feel good cognitively. But very few people actually then convert that into physical action in the real world because their instincts are not, they're not involved in any way. And if you look at your life, you'll realize that people, you know, typically you don't experience um, the kind of fear and adrenaline rush that you you would normally experience if you were, you know, a hunter or gatherer. But you will experience this mediocre anxiety if you like your boss sends you an email or something like that at the wrong time and stuff like that. So when I read Fuck Like a Beast, I assumed it has something to do with disinhibiting that animal nature, and obviously, you know, specifically in the sexual domain, but also moving out of this, like, overly cognitive uh, headspace and into something more embodied. Um, hmm. But fill in the gaps for me.
1: Yeah, I I, I mean, um, yeah, yeah, I'm... the it, it, it it's 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 in, the, in that direction yes um i i'm a little bit careful about the whole embodiment um discussion mm. but even, even though uh, i mean it's it's very very strong in my in my own circles and i guess in, in american culture progressive culture i might i think you might say um and the the part that i'm that, that i'm skeptical about is um well, first of all, uh, it sounds like uh, it's better to be, um, I, I don't know, a, a, a dancing naked hippie on the beach than to be an intellectual professor or an engineer. Which I, you know, I, I think the jury's out, right, on on what. Yeah, is. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, so first of all, it can easily be become a norm like that, and second of all, I've also seen it used uh, in an, an, analogously to to uh, postmodernists. Um, uh, to postmodernist pathologies or or dynamics that are unhealthy, where where they get a, go after each other, like wait a minute, you said woman, not pussy bear. What, what mm. sort of turf are you? Uh, the people also, when they don't like somebody, they say, well, they're right technically about their argument, but they're not embodied, right? And you can't disprove <laughs> or it. or they're fat. Like, and and at the end of the day, uh, people start trying to. Um, um, uh, compete to, 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 um, uh, enact, uh, enact is, is a term also from, uh, you know, uh, gender theory and stuff, uh, and enact embodiment, uh, when, and it becomes a, actually a fairly gender oppressive norm where, where people like, like, oh, I'm embodied, like, and, mm. and, uh, uh, and it's, a, it's a manner of competition for, for, for status then, which, which of course, all of which is really unhealthy. And not productive, and doesn't make you embodied at all, right? Uh, so, so just just putting out that little warning. So, so I don't actually speak that language in the book, but if we go beyond beyond that particular language language game, uh, yes, that's the that's the idea basically. Uh, we have inhibitions; we can't help it, right? I mean, you came into this world. I have a ten month old, ten eleven month old daughter. Yeah, I mean. You feel her when you see her, right? If she, if she if she is having fun or not, if she's hungry, if she uh, wants something, I mean, the whole her whole little being is aliveness and spontaneity, right? And is, I mean, it's it's almost as she's from another world. Right? It's like you can't believe it, mm-hmm. when you see it, it's like. Uh, one of those stop motion things on TV for an old, from old movies when they, I don't know, they have a fawn or something and it's a stop motion picture and, and it doesn't have the same coloring or light as everything around it and looks sort of surreal. And little babies are sort of like that. They're like from another universe entirely because they are so uninhibited, mm. right? Uh, and uh, and it, it looks like they just sort of break social reality before our eyes. Um, it's like, uh, can I shit while, while while at the dinner table? Watch me. <laughs> I felt like it and I did it. And now I'm screaming at you to <laughs> clean up the mess. So uh, th- 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 there, are, there are things like that. And we, we sort of all have that inner child still in us, but we weren't so kind to it. We mm-hmm. weren't because we, you know, we were ashamed, we had to adjust to one another, we had to make things work together, we had to partake in a social reality game, et cetera. We had to grow, grow adult capacities where we had to pass, pass a bunch of marshmallow tests and all of that. And when um, and, and we oppressed the kid, the the, the, the inner child, and the inner child in its adult aspect includes sexuality, of course. Uh, so so we also, I mean, sexuality is of course always a lot larger than the actual sexual acts that we have. So, so we always have a larger erotic universe of innuendos and fantasies, or, you know, just energies in the body. And if you go deep enough that direction, you you know, you come on something deeper, even than eroticism, uh, which you might call cosmic So it's not my term originally, but mm-hmm. it's been floating around out there. So you had I had Zach I Stein get... on
0: talk about it a couple of times. Zach ago. Stein
1: talks about it, for instance. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so as a, a common friend of ours, I suppose. And um, and cosmic eroticism is about uh, well, eroticism at the deepest level. So it's universal. It's about the lust for life in general, right? And how in love are you with life? And this is also Irish. From he said, a life we don't need smarter people or more highly educated people or more competent people. We we need men and women who are in love with life. Mm. And that always stuck with me. It's like, wow, yes, this is actually it. I'm, I'm not as in love with life as I perhaps was, and I can definitely see how I would guide my life better if I was in love, right? Uh, And I would also just feel that, well, this it is a love affair fundamentally, right? And if it's not you and reality, or you or God, and or whatever, it's. If it's not a love affair, then what? What is it? Right? It should be a love affair. It should be. Mm-hmm. That's what we deep down wish for, and uh, and that's I think what we deep down are in love with life. We we just we're just stopping ourselves because life has been too difficult, too painful, and ironically, then it's not by going to the Ibiza parties that you, that you unlock this. If we if that was the case, we would see yeah. a spiritual rebirth around Ibiza. However, that's or around Beverly Hills. That somehow that's not happening, right? Why is that not happening? Well, well, that pleasure doesn't hit a spot. It, it's the it's sort of like you know pouring water on a goose. Just sort of, or or we, we're we're too armored. Uh, so we oftentimes we actually experience pleasure by facing our deepest crisis in life. And this is this is weird. Uh, but I mean, you went to therapy, uh, you work with this stuff yourself. I think you can recognize what I'm saying that there yeah. isn't, I, I just went through a fairly severe family crisis, uh, this year myself. I can't go into this family stuff. Right. Uh, but, um, what happened was I did I become unhappy? Well, yeah, I guess. When, when there's a big conflict and, and people aren't talking to each other anymore and stuff like that but once you get to your truth and you work through the issue you feel alive and grateful right yeah. and you feel that maybe there was some stuff that needed to be expressed right or na- that I've been holding back for, for maybe decades even right Um. so yeah That and and and, and that comes out as a life force right uh, that you uh, which which can include sex but doesn't have to right so ho- obviously uh, it's, it's the attitude like of you, you let yourself fuck like a beast if you want to right That's, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, sex in that literal sense right um, and mm-hmm. the reason I put this particular thing in the in the book, is if it, this is sort of a response uh, to, to Peterson rules and, and his, his worldview, his is, after all, a fairly conservative one. And I, the ideal all the time is sort of this responsible tweed suit person a little bit, right? Even though he tries to make it right. for liberals as well. And and, uh, and this was also your experience that he was, uh, you know, uh, good, uh, good with, you know... Uh, uh, letting you letting you uh be happy about your own openness and so forth uh, and in uh, mm. uh, the um, psychology spectrum you said something like that right uh, and your professional development and so forth uh, so uh, so even though he tries to strike that balance there is there is like oh we should be a little bit like more like the 50s um and we should you know man up a little bit and and not be so, uh, so, uh, so, such w- wusses about stuff. And there's something I can't really trust about that integrity, conservative person. I've, I've never met that person. I never saw one, right? In my whole life, mm-hmm. never met. Uh, rather, you scratch the surface of just about anyone, their lust for life is there. And the ones we can trust are the ones who have their lust for life not reined in, but aligned, right? Because the lust for life is going to win over whatever things we we uh, put in its way, right? It, it even gets demonic if we really try to stop it, right? Or if it really gets suppressed. So, so there's, and, and this goes for spiritual leaders. It goes for left-wing intellectuals. I go through all of those things in the book, right? That you see how they all end up being hypocrites. And Mm -hmm. who can you trust? Well, you can trust the person who you know to be in love with life, right? Who you know to feel, you know, satisfied and grateful about stuff. Because otherwise, like, oh, they work so much on their compassion, or they work so much on having the highest states, or they work so much on having integrity in their career, and they work so hard at it. Well guess what, the kid is still locked in there. I know it's in there, right? And it's gonna come out and it's gonna pull your levers uh, levers, maybe. Um, so um, yeah, if we want that integrity for real, we have to find that inner child. And there are sort of these portals in our life and, and those portals are often actually the, the the crises. And if you follow all the other rules, you you will actually make those crises happen a bit more often, <laughs> is is the, mm. sort of the idea. But um, so yeah, and and that so, uh, serves a sublime mediocrity, I guess. Right? If uh, uh, if if that little kid inner her kid is happy, you are happy, right? And the reason you're at seven and not eight most of the time is you're somehow
0: <clears throat>
1: suppressing or or or. Uh, well, there there's something inside you that doesn't come alive as it should or could, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah, so we're we're coming up on our time here, but just um in closing, well, yeah, I, I want to summarize actually, some of the things you said. Um and let me know if you if you have to if you have to jump off. No, no actually
1: actually we're fine. I think uh, I, I think it okay. worked out fine.
0: So one of the things that just clicked for me is um almost this paradox that I've experienced with Peterson having known him as a a, a, from a personal perspective as like an actual human being in my life that I would see on a weekly basis to then him becoming this public persona and then you know the years like I've had more of a relationship with as a with him as a public persona now than I have had as like an actual person because I was in therapy with him many years ago and one of these weird things that I couldn't quite reconcile was that he popped up as almost like a conservative commentator in the eyes of many people. And, you know, he dresses in the suits and everything. And he's like now on Ben Shapiro's uh, media channel, like the Daily Wire. And he's like collected around some of these other like obviously conservative people. And most people see him as a conservative guy. But I, that never felt fully right because I also knew him as a, an insanely open-minded, creative, out there type thinker. And one of the people that's been so responsible for taking otherwise, you know, hyper-rationalist, structured, conservative thinkers and blowing their minds open to something beyond that, you know, bringing the spiritual into a more rigid materialist uh, epistemology and stuff. And I was like, what, what, what is this thing? Because I also see the conservative side. So like, what, what exactly is going on here and why, why is there this seeming paradox? And I think the way I see it now, based on what you were just saying, is that, he it's almost like um he got refracted in the culture like the the cultural perception on him and the whole experience of the culture war had this like refracting effect on who he is as a person or forced him into some sort of like category that that existed and then you end up with somebody and this is the key word somebody who is much less playful than he otherwise could be and that that's what feels more correct to me when i if i take the word conservative out of the picture it's like what is it exactly that people are pointing at when they say conservative some of it is political conservatism but it's this experience of like seriousness that i think has also dialed up over the years um by him being an embattled figure and yeah i i don't see the playful peterson as much um as i as i used to and you said this thing about redeeming the inner child and just connect it with everything else you've been talking about i think one way in which everybody can go from a seven to an eight in their mediocrity is to introduce play into their lives in a in a very serious way um and that's also one of the kind of background themes of the metagame the reason why i like this analogy of a game is that games are you know fun (laughs) they're light you know it's just a game and in in many ways in my own life bringing that approach the serious situations and being playful about dancing with them and and overcoming them has has been one of the ways in which i get into sublime mediocrity so maybe as a as a closing question for you and you, you can you can hone in on anything that i've said there but i'll just throw this into the mix um like it's two things come up like how can people bring play like in a practical way into their lives more and i think what's very related is you mentioned this thing about falling in love with life and I love that so much. I think that's that's like a really good frame. How can people fall in love with life a little bit more?
1: I just want to say uh, before I perhaps try to answer that uh, that I just did a control F find in the document um, hmm. for for game in the book. It's 106, 106 mentions, and I will also oh, there go. Do play there for for play so so obviously these are important topics right 152 is play right mm.
0: um
1: so almost every page basically right and that will be either about game or play um and um i mean how how can we fa- uh, fall in love with uh, with life um i mean Given, given, it's a complex, it's a complex issue, right? But the, the whole book sort of is a funnel, so maybe, my, maybe I'm giving it, uh, it out too much, or I'm, I'm a, or I mean, I. Uh, spoiler alert, right? If you want to read the book, just mm-hmm. close close this. Whoever's listening, but there's sort of a funnel in the book, and it, it, there is a deeper principle behind all of it, uh, and the principle is forgiveness. So the last book, the last rule is play for forgiveness, and there's a weave underneath the complexities of the rules that 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 sort of position you emotionally and mentally towards seeing this goal of forgiveness. However, forgiveness isn't something you do; Uh, it's something you play for, or you can't just tell yourself to do it. Forgiveness is the goal. So you sort of have to score that goal if, if you just if you start on on square one where you're uh, bitter and there is raging injustice right here and now uh and uh, you're not you haven't stood up for yourself yet you haven't quit relationships don't work you, you haven't worked out your own shame and guilt and the issues right uh you haven't uh, released your own inner child um uh, all of those things that the different rules are about and you then and then you listen to a meta meditation uh, and, and you meditate on your heart and you think about something you don't like forgive them. I, mean, I forgive you i forgive you i feel a little bit good for a, for, a, for a moment but after you know there's so many new UH age people out there who end up wanting to strangle each other why is that
0: mm-hmm.
1: well because you can't just walk if you're on the other side of the goal, if you're playing a hard, a hard enemy, maybe an opponent, in the book we use Arsenal, right? the, the, the soccer team, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, And if you're maybe by your own goal, and you, you're just shooting at their goal, you're going to lose, Right. <laughs> Uh, so you, you have to dribble, you have to make passes, you have to get past obstacles, the obstacles aren't moving, they want to get the ball from you, they want to shoot your your goal with resentment and hatred and stuff like that, right? And you want to shoot, so, and, so you want to be good at playing the whole game because you're going to have to forgive the world again and again. Mm. Right? You're going to have to forgive people again and again. Whether or not you want them back in your life, whether or not... So so the better you are at forgiving, the better you are at falling in love. That's it. Mm. That, that's what the whole game plan is. Right? And the, the number one thing to forgive, whether you are a believer or an atheist, is God, as as in the highest principle of everything, right? Um, I mean, there, there's this quote by Stephen Fry. People, you know who Stephen Fry is?
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this yeah.
1: public figure in the in, in UK, right? Uh, and he's an actor and he writes books and stuff. I think he did something with Peterson too. of course everybody did something with Peterson these days but uh, but um, that Stephen Fry is asked what if you you die and um, what if you die and you then go to heaven and you meet there's a pearl gate and voila God and uh, the interviewers you know thinks maybe he'll show some humility or, you know, say so he's sorry he didn't believe or something, but he says, well, how dare you? How dare you? And then he starts listing things like about a tropical worm that crawls in the eyes of children and stuff like that. Like, you created all this. And that's a real good first step, right? Yeah, sure. Stand up to injustice, even if it's from God himself, right? But whether whether or not you're... In his mind, he has to not believe because if God existed... He'd, he'd be too pissed at him, right? It's not, that's, mm. that's not a very healthy answer if you think about it, right? I can't believe in him mm-hmm. because I'd be too pissed, right? Somehow, somehow you would have to say, okay, maybe you're sublimely mediocre. <laughs> and like, maybe, maybe I have to forgive you, right? Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying this is easy, right? I'm just saying it's the goal, but if we're good, if we could if we can hit that goal, I think that is sort of that's sort of just the other side of the same coin as being in love with with life, right? Uh, because if you look at yeah. being in love with somebody, what what it means or loving somebody really, uh, there's the positive side, which is you notice the beauties of the person, right? the sublime sublimities, right? Uh, and. Uh, uh, th- that would go unnoticed to 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 the non-lover uh, if you turn that coin around and you look at um what the other side of love is is acceptance because you love somebody then you're going to accept them despite their flaws right um so so for love to be complete you have to create that space of acceptance and and the act of doing that, I suppose, is what we the the the, the thing we call forgiveness, right? Um, so, if there is one deeper principle or rule, and I realize, hey, I'm from a Protestant country, this can't be a this, even though I'm not a religious person, right? Um, this can't be a coincidence that I come up with basically the religion of my my home country, yeah. but um, but. But I think there is a profound truth to it, right? That that we we become we we fall in love to the degree that we forget, right? So, hmm. the game of life is not about getting rich. It's not a, It's not about um, in, you know, being reborn as uh, in a higher realm. It's not about um, uh, creating a legacy. Taj Mahal, or, or something that, like that, right? Uh, or or a philosophical legacy, or whatever else. It is forgiving life, right? Letting go of it, right? And other things can happen, but at the end of the day, won't matter. They won't matter so much, right? Uh, let's say, uh, let's say there were two people two thousand five hundred years ago. One of them was Aristotle, and one of them was just a random Greek we never heard about now, let's say aristotle dies bitter but everybody still talks about 2500 years later and let's say the other person forgave life or forgave god and you know died happy uh who would you want to be right
0: mm.
1: uh, and who would yeah who, who non-linearly probably contributed most to the flower flowering of, of being in the world right it's probably the person who was in love with life who forgave forgave god right um okay spoiler obviously but um but but that's that's sort of the whole thing it it was because you asked so profound questions right i'm looking forward to more shallow interviews later on we don't give it away but there's still more flesh on the bones like uh, for for if if you're a listener uh, i still want want to say that the book would be worth reading just for for the flesh on the bones on the skeleton right
0: yeah, and we only talked about one of the rules and, and each of them are are just incredibly interesting. It's like they're tweets that I just want to click on and read the full thread and uh, we'll we'll save those for, for the future. I could I could keep talking to you for, for another hour. The one thing I'll say just to close is to tie in play and forgiveness. I notice that when I fuck up in my life, you know, when I make the same mistakes that I know it like I, I learned these mistakes years ago, but I'm making them again. I notice that if I laugh at myself for making them, I'm much more likely to forgive myself for making them and then therefore transcend them. And that's been one of the most practical, beneficial, like self-help, personal development Mm -hmm. pieces of advice that I've ever encountered for myself. And uh, maybe something practical to leave the listeners with. But uh, Daniel, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for this conversation today.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. It's such a pleasure to get to know you a bit. I I think we'll run each other in in other settings. such a bummer i missed you when uh when uh, if i kn- knew you were from toronto we could have a uh, mess and live when i was there right
0: yeah and uh, maybe, maybe we'll have a chance to do that in the future